Hello, you're listening to An Adequate Podcast by me, John Paul Flintoff. It's about creative self-expression through writing, drawing and speaking. And it's adequate because I can't do perfect. I've had an email from Dicella, my friend, who says, Dear JP, I'm listening to your podcast. It's great. I expect that you've now tracked down Martin Pistorius, who I interviewed in episode one, or an interview I did years ago I used in episode one. Um, And Dicella has found a Twitter address for Martin, and indeed I have now found Martin, and I've been reconnected, which is really lovely. And Martin says he's now a father, which is very exciting. I, I hope maybe I'll come back to that. The next thing that Dicella says, which is really wonderful because it's really helpful, welcome feedback. One thing I'm having difficulty with is that I don't seem to be able to go from one episode to the next properly. At the end of the episode with Jay Heinrichs, it played the previous episode with Helen Bagnall. The same thing had happened previously with Helen's episode, followed by Martin Pistorius that I'd already listened to. It may be an issue with my setup. I'm listening on Apple Podcasts. In addition, you could number the episodes as it makes referring them to others easier. Uh, or maybe I misread that, maybe referring others to them. Anyway, uh, thank you so much, Dicella. I, I really mean it. That's really helpful because I actually also had a phone conversation with my friend Martin who said that he was really enjoying it, but he found the navigation a bit difficult. I'm quite aware that it probably is, and I... Yeah, it's not a, not an excuse. I'm trying to make an explanation of work in progress, which is what the subject of this podcast is. I sort of knew that I wouldn't put the podcast out unless I just put it out, and it would have to be, yeah, maybe adequate, but not perfect by any means, and not that perfect's possible. But I wanted to put lots of things out in order to have something to look back on and impose some sort of structure with retrospective overview, rather than attempt to work it all out in my own head beforehand and then not have a clue how to get started. So what I'm um, doing in this episode, which is episode 14, is I'm just going to have a little bit of a a look back on what has this podcast been. I think it's quite worth doing that because it's something that I learned in theatrical improvisation. You can impose structure on something with, with hindsight. So if you improvise a talk to people, you you will know what you've done. You needn't worry too much about that. It can help to make notes as you go along, as I have just done. So it's not that you have to remember everything. But as you look back towards the end, you can conclude what you think you have done and notice any patterns and any points and share them with your audience. And if the audience still has any questions or comments or insights to share, they they will. And you can impose this pattern and structure and change things as you go along. So that's what I'm doing here in episode 14. What I've done is taken a couple of pages in my notebook and written down the date of my 13 previous episodes, what the title was, roughly the sorts of content that each episode covered, and the name of the people who figured in it. So that's four different columns. Date, episode, name, points it covers, and the name of individuals in it. So then I was able to draw up 
some, I was able to notice some patterns. So I noticed, for example, that if you leave me aside, there were, the following episodes had mainly male voices. Episodes 1, 3, 4, 8, 10, 11 and 12. The following episodes had mainly female voices, if you leave me aside. 2, 5, 6, 7, 9 and 13. I don't know why that's important, I just noticed it. Because I was writing down the names of the people who featured in those episodes. Martin Pistorius, who you've just heard about, was in episode 1. Helen Bagnall, who you've just heard about, was in episode 2. Jay Heinrichs was in episode 3. Then there was a group in episode 4. Dom, David, Zoe, Pete. Then Nikki Forsyth in episode 5. And then I did an interview with Joe Garby in 6. And then there was a highlight from a workshop in episode 7. So I started noticing more patterns. One of the other patterns I noticed was that the podcast started erratically with the interval between episodes getting shorter and shorter so that I decided after a few episodes, maybe three or four episodes, that I would do one every three days. I needed a rhythm for myself so that I didn't go crazy. I wanted to put out lots of material before my book launch, so I I did probably more yeah, you know, once every three days is quite hard, uh, but it's also not that hard. So that so that I established a rhythm, and that was one of the things that happened as I put this out. I just started to notice that I wanted a rhythm, and it gave me a reason to put out a podcast as I'm doing today, because today is the third day, and I have to put this out. I've given myself that permission and um, almost a requirement of myself. Then I looked at the different ways in which I could look at the episodes and think about the content of the episodes and what could what could they have to do with the the canons of rhetoric, which is a dreadful term for the different ways of thinking about how you do public speaking, which is, after all, the nature of my book and the reason why I'm doing a podcast, because it's, it's oral, it's spoken, it's auditory. So I noticed that I've got some episodes which are broadly about the working out what you have to say bit of public speaking. I've got some which are about how you arrange your content. I've got a few about the style that you use to polish up your content. Not many about how one remembers things. I've got a lot of episodes which are about the delivery of your talk. So that was mildly interesting. Then I thought about what are the different types of audio content I've got. I've got three episodes with chunks of audio recorded during a workshop that I did. Those are, if you're interested, episodes four, seven and nine. I've got three episodes where I read aloud from my own writing, episodes one, ten and eleven. Excuse me. And I have several episodes that included a straight interview or sometimes more than one interview. Episodes 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 8, 11, 12 and 13. I wrote down, this was before I heard from Dicella, I wrote down my own ideas of what I could do to improve it and the main thing was to explain to listeners, that is to you, you special person listening to this, explain to the listeners what's coming and maybe also a little bit more about what has happened in the past. And I wondered to myself, why have I not done that more? And partly the answer is because a part of me is a bit slapdash and cavalier and just wants to get on with things. 
another part of me though is actually quite tidy and considerate and minded to try to make this work for you so it could be just that I felt the pressure of time or that I hadn't realised that I wanted to have some more signposting here and there but then to hear from Martin on the phone and then from Dicello on an email that confirms my hunch that I need that I'd like to put in more tasters from previous and next episodes and refer across to them more often and I've done what Dicella asked which is to add the episode number to all of the episodes that I've recorded so far so I've gone back and amended things another thing I thought was to weave in a bit more about the content on my blog and to blog more about my podcast probably I could do that a lot better I found someone on Instagram who does a wonderful job of talking about what's coming up in her podcast and then sharing the podcast and even having little bits of audio on Instagram so I might do that that's all I really had in mind I just thought for this episode I would look back and see what has this podcast been as itself a piece of work in progress how have I enjoyed doing it what have I found most most fun I haven't really answered that. I think what I've enjoyed most is the idea that there is this this part of me which really enjoys spoken utterance. There is another part of me that really likes writing things down, but that can feel quite um, mentally bogged down, very intellectual, not so heartfelt. Another part of me just likes drawings, which is obviously completely irrelevant to a podcast, one would imagine. But... Um, the idea of speaking and having putting out something like the podcasts that I like myself and enjoying those and talking about work in progress as a way to continue with the momentum and look back at the work in progress and look forward to projects that are coming up like I keep mentioning the idea of doing an online pilgrimage in April this year and I'm working on that so that's what I've done thanks for listening to this bit I'm not sure yet what's coming next, but I will tell you in a moment. Ron Boyd Macmillan is the author of a remarkably useful and entertaining book called Explosive Preaching, which I picked up while researching my own book. Ron's insights, although they're intended specifically for religious preachers, are useful to anybody who intends to make a speech, whether at a wedding or for work. In this interview, Ron tells me, among much else, that St Augustine was an accomplished improviser. He admits that he enters churches with extremely low expectations and tells me how he once prepared preachers in China in house churches to memorise dozens of hours of sermons all at once. Whatever your interest in communication, you'll learn from Ron how to think about your purpose, your audience, the arrangement of your material, the style you adopt, how to memorise your material, and how best to deliver it. I'll just read the first paragraph. This really is what it says, a short history of preaching in Western Europe. You might not have guessed when you picked up this book that you needed a short history of preaching in Western Europe, and maybe when you finish this section you'll decide that you didn't. But it can be refreshing and useful to draw lessons from a variety of disciplines. Whatever you happen to speak about or plan to speak about, you may find something useful here. I hope so. As with the whole of this book, I urge you to take what you like and leave the rest. So um, the, the reason why I mention that, and then I go on to say that um, 
that you basically are, are the, the person who has given me all of this information and that I enjoy your book and so on. And I give, I give highlights from your book. And the reason why I mention it like this is because I suspect most people thinking about how to be a public speaker, if they are not preachers, and indeed if they're not Christian, might not think about this. But actually, yeah. reading your book is a great, you know, you could learn to be a public speaker from doing that. Yes, the skills are very transferable, yeah. And, and one of the things that I really loved was that you do give this history of how relatively normal people have done public speaking for absolutely hundreds of years. Yes, that's true. Although I suppose when you look at the history of it, you're always jumping from genius to genius. <laughs> right. You know, and the geniuses, of course, very often are the ones that don't observe the rules because that's, you know, like Augustine basically doesn't worry about form, you know, um, because he's, he's just too good at crafting paragraphs and sentences. And he does it all spontaneously. You know, I mean, I, I, I sometimes urge people, I have a little course that I teach. Uh, it's called Preaching Like Augustine. And I basically say, look, Augustine's method was he looked at the passage and he figured out what he might say. But he left it. He left the how to say to the moment. Right. Because he wanted to read the audience. Right. And, you know, if it was too hot and people were very distracted, he would shut up after five minutes. You know, if they were in the mood, he'd give them an hour and a half. You know, it just depended. And of course, this is Africa. So you do get maybe better signals, you know, than from, you know, the frozen chosen in, in the UK or, or wherever. Right. But, uh, but, but that's, that's the skill uh, that, that he had. And the key thing with him, John Paul, was that I feel like he took us back to a better system of public speaking generally, which is you are what you love. I mean, modern preaching, especially in a more evangelical setting, is you are what you know. So you give them all the information about the passage. Liberal preaching, I would say in some ways slightly better because they say you are what you feel. So the idea is to deliver an experience, you know, of whatever they're right. talking about. But Augustine is you are what you love. <clears throat> and the only way you can train love is through delight. So his whole point is when you get up and speak a sermon, for example, you're wanting to delight those people in God so that their loves will go run toward God. Right. And for him, you know, there's only two things that go wrong with the human being. Either you love the, the, the right thing too much or you love the wrong thing. Now, I mean, that can work in political rhetoric, you know, because uh, you're always trying to key in to what's a person's deepest desire right and and how to to make that run and of course most the bad ones do it through fear the best ones use delight i'm so glad you said that um one of the things that so i don't know if you've looked on my website you may have seen that i had a breakdown in 2018 and one of the things that was happening in the months before that is i started studying marketing online uh -huh. And these American, they were all American, I'm not saying all Americans do this, but they all happen to be American kind of marketing wizards. They really used fear a lot. I think it really yeah. got me down. It's like, you're not doing yeah. it right, you're not doing... 
So are you saying that in any kind of speaking, we, can, we don't have to use fear? Yes, I, I, I think it's far better to use delight. Uh, because otherwise, how do you how do you deal with the <clears throat> excuse me the initial resistance that is always there anyway? You know that, that's always in the space between you. As soon as you stand up and speak to people, there is resistance in the air. And the best way to overcome it is to slide in through delight rather than challenge. I mean, if you look at the history, though, you know the history of of most speaking and writing in the rhetorical sphere is you you entertain by taking apart your enemy right but you know it's it's you use controversy yes. you know that's the enemy you know luther writes his pamphlets or or speaks his sermons the pope you know is is killing religion is killing god you know and the more brutal and and vicious it is the more entertaining it is right you know and and that was that's the method that was the method and of course you get a, a certain uh the adversarial system that we have in britain you know in politics is a, is 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 just the you know the result of that really um, well it is it is to some extent or at least people seem very strongly to believe that it is effective Yes, and it is because it does, even again back to Augustine, if you want to understand Augustine, you always look at what he's fighting against. Right. You know, so the, the other great secret of great speech is what's your target? You know, what's, what's taking down that you're, you're wanting an outcome to happen in that person? Who's the enemy? that's trying to prevent that and you fight against it. So for Augustine, it was, you know, the Manichaeans, it was the academics, it was the Pelagians, you know, whatever. Yes. But you can always date him as to who he's fighting against. Right. And, and that's, that's a big deal, you know, when you talk about who's in front of your face um, and speaking to them, um, you've got to think, well, yeah, but who's, who's attacking them? Or what, what are they... Uh, what are they getting what are they enthralled to that they need release from right and and this is where you know you guys are better because you you could use art better to disarm right you know rather than the straightforward you know brutal kind of sledgehammer tactics yes that, that uh, you know you often find in the in the truth game you know which the church is is, is kind of in yes so you said earlier that it's a lot about the geniuses and in your book you show that the geniuses sort of set the weather for some time to come afterwards because everyone wants to be like them and then that becomes a bit bland yes or, or sort of old hat yes uh, or you can just keep reinventing it you know like the revivalist form you know maybe it it, it was started by whitfield people like that but it's still going strong you know you travel around you go to big churches in Mexico City, Latin America. It's the classic pattern, you know. It's right. somebody who is who is basically a performer. You know, you look at um, you go onto the website and look at uh, TD Jakes. You know, and it's all that classic. Um, you know, really taking you out of yourself. But the interesting thing about TD Jakes is that he'll spend the first ten minutes trying 
to target your deeper desire. And his whole point is, you've been told all your life that you're nothing. You're coming to my church, and I'm going to tell you on behalf of God, you're somebody special. That's really what it's all about. Right. And, and he was raised, you know, on the, in the bayou, you know, didn't get to read until he was, you know, 11 or 12, that kind of thing. That's the kind of people that are coming to that church and they're right. getting their head lifted up, you know, yes. because of that. Uh, but that's the same idea. What, what do these people really need? How, what, what's the lift they need? What's yes. defining them? They're wanting to be someone. And, and that's, that, that's that thing again, you know, and, and modern speakers have forgotten how to key in to people's deepest desires. Right. I think we're living in an age where political rhetoric is pathetic, absolutely pathetic. In what way? Can you sort of elaborate on that? Because I'm very well, curious I, to hear. I remember it, it hitting me very hard when I was watching, this is a few years back now, Cameron brown and clegg you know and and um very few of them are, are, are good i mean cameron is fluent but he's not particularly inspiring they're all very bland and you couldn't basically tell the difference in the policies now a good rhetorician should sound inspiring and tell you the difference that there's right. a world of difference between what Nick Clegg is going to do and what I'm going to do, because that's what you're voting for. Mm. But the problem is um, they don't seem to know how to, how to accentuate the difference. I always say, now, if you want to learn, learn public speaking, it's, it's the, the method I use is H-PIST. Sounds terrible. Um, it's H1-PIST. H is for humble. Your attitude matters, right? Yes. If you come across as, a, as an arrogant so-and-so, nobody's going to believe you. Right. But, so that's that whole, you know, pathos thing, you know, that, that, that you'd get taught in classical rhetoric. Yes. But then you make one point, you tell it with a story, and you emphasize what difference it will make. Point, right. story, difference. One only. Right. And very few people even know how to stick to that. One, only one. For the whole sermon or speech? Preferably. I mean, yes, yes, because that's the oral, that's the oral rule. Right. You, can make, you can make three or four points, but as long as they serve one big one. Okay, so different yeah. approaches to the big mountain, but, but you're yeah. still doing that one thing. Okay, and humble all the way through. Yes, it's your attitude, in other words. Okay. If you're coming across as an entitled so-and-so that's telling everybody, you know, that you know better, you're not going to get the vote. Right. What um, I suspect might be difficult for people is to think, but I am so, people who are beginning is, but, I'm, but I am really not very good, so I need to look a bit better. So how can I be <laughs> humble? Yes, that's right. And I mean, it isn't easy because this is why I say the secret to this is always to come as a coach, as a friend. Because people really don't know how they come across. And very often when you have to give help and criticism even, it's only possible if you're their friend. Right. So, so I, I say, you know, yeah, you can read my book, but you're basically, oh, most preachers, I'm sure, look at that book and say, well, I do all that. 
you know, it's not really going to change them. It, but mm-hmm. if I get to know them and I say, you know, you didn't really hit that passage very well or, or you know, you got very confused with this. In a context of friendship, I can help them. Yes. So, you know, your model maybe for your website is to, is to offer an ongoing relationship right. with the people that, you, that are impressed with your material because that's really, I think, how you help them. I often say the best time I can help a preacher is after they've preached their sermon, not before. Right. Because then all the nervousness is gone and then they can step back and then they can actually take a slightly different look at, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I didn't quite get that right. But it's afterwards, not before. Right. And are you recording them or are they just remembering it in the moment? It would depend on on who I was helping. You know, if if they're in a cathedral or something like that, it's always recorded. And then you can go back over uh, over the recording and talk about it. I don't do it very much now because... When it comes to the church, the church doesn't pay to learn skills. Right. Um, political parties will, right. um, but, but the church doesn't. And it's partly this idea that, that well, yeah, but God's going to bless it anyway. You know? Right. So God loves you even if you make a mess. Yes, that's right. And of course he does. You know, I mean, it's, it's a part yeah. of truth. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, but it, it doesn't mean that... Um, that you can't enhance the the impact um and it's not you know it's a sin to bore for jesus you know it still is it's just a sin yeah and did you when you were doing more of it did were you working with people from all sorts of different denominations yes very much so and all continents i had a couple of mega church pastors in the states um i had two or three leaders of chinese house churches that actually preached um to you know Technically, when they would go into the countryside, they'd be speaking to. I really ten. want to talk about this because you're yeah. sixty-six, thirty-three-one. That yes, that's away. right. Can yes, you talk about the pastors first, and then we'll come to the? <laughs> so it was quite a it was quite a mixture. Uh, sometimes it would be, um, you know, pastors that would just have a a lot. They were all larger churches, uh, meaning in the states three to five thousand, but but wow. in Britain maybe, you know. 500 or something like that yeah we've got different numbers over here and in china and also in indonesia i had a couple of clients there so uh, so it was a it was a good mix i've had some clients in the um african setup um but it's it's a bit difficult with, with them um they are very much more into performance and uh, I fell out with one quite drastically recently because he wanted help with some of his sermons. But we were disagreeing. He felt like he could use the authority of God to say that no one will get COVID if you come to my church. Right. And we kind of fell out about, you know, I said, that's, that's not, who do you think you are, basically? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, that, that you're not God. You know, you've got to you've got to put a bit of distance between you know the god you're speaking on behalf of and, and who you are anyway that, that we fell out but but uh, they're they're mostly asia yeah. america and and europe and what are the what are the things that you do with the the big churches what are their questions and problems that you're resolving i take them through the drills you know the 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 six drills that i teach them um that are in the, the heart of that book you know how do you 
how do you make sure the reality test you know um are you speaking to the dilemmas yes that your congregation uh, are, are experiencing um rather than you know this this black and white you know everybody wants to love jesus here's how to do it you know that kind of thing you haven't got into anybody's life where they are right um you know so teaching them these drills um oral you know trying not to make sure they get multiplitis in the right. sermon so that they make you know 20 30 points that are going all over the place right and i mean ultimately i would say that that you get two types that i've come across one is they think it's all content and you have to teach them style uh, yeah. and how to make a you know so they would typically take a passage and they'd expound it for 40 minutes and then it would be up to god you know to, to make it practical and you have to sort of say actually you can do more work you know in that area right when you talk about style are you talking about the the verbal variety or, or delivery yes delivery you know saying one thing as opposed to ten right you know um that kind of thing uh, making sure your voice is right Yes. Uh, making sure that you tell stories that are going to connect, you know, um, making sure that you don't tell them everything about the passage and then just bore them silly with all the information. You know, these are all style questions. They're not just content. Mm. And, and, you know, people shouldn't drive such a hard distinction between the two. That, mm. that, that causes problems. Yeah. Um. I'm, I'm really saving up the thing about the house churches because I'm so excited. Um, one more question beforehand. Do you, I, I got the impression from your email that you go into churches quite often and your heart sinks. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, I used to, because as I say, I'm a Buddhist now. Right. When I go to a, a service, <laughs> I'm a Christian, yeah. but I go yeah. with a Buddhist sense of expectation. I'm never disappointed because I'm not expecting right. to be, to really be up uplifted it's horrible how it's kind of got to this point i, I mean yeah. i'm not i'm not happy to to say that's where i'm at but but i really do feel like that's where we are there's an interesting um interview with tom holland you know the guy who wrote dominion yes and it's done by mark brickman of uh, st aldates in oxford and holland sort of talks about how he says why are the church leaders through COVID? so disappointing they all sound like bureaucrats mm. and he says why haven't they got aren't they not excited that they have some kind of incredible and weird message called christianity to offer but why in the end are they just sounding like an adjunct to a health and safety inspector you, you know that yeah. That, that bothers me because this is a great time to be speaking yeah. to, to the world about the importance of the sacred and, and having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's, it's bizarre that the very religious professionals seem either unwilling or incapable of serving that message with any power. Apart from the the leaders of the religious denominations, have you seen things um, that pleased you in terms of online sermons and delivering in the closure of churches? I haven't. I mean, I've looked for a bit, um, 
but I haven't I haven't really seen something I say oh, I'm going to tune in on that next week. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen it. Maybe it's there. Maybe you can you know point me somewhere. To me, it sounded amazing what you managed to achieve with these people in China. Can you give us a bit of context about who they were, why you were there, and then what what you did with them? These were um, rural house churches. In other words, you've got about I would say about 50 million, maybe 70 million Christians who are outside the cities and they have big networks that uh, cover different provinces. And uh, normally the system is a person gets converted and they feel a call to preach. And in China, you move fast. So you say, right, uh, go off to this, this place and we'll train you for a year. And that's it. But so you don't worry about prerequisites, you know, in terms of well, what, where have you been? And, and you know, must, you might take this exam and that kind of thing. They're just harnessing that initial enthusiasm and fire because maybe their theory is you're never more on fire for, for Jesus when, than just after you've met him. Right. You know, so if you send these people out fast, you know, that's what spreads a revival kind of thing. So um, they said, look, you know, we want to, to train people and we're fed up with the Western method, you know, which takes them through, you know, systematic theology and, and teaches them a bit of Greek and Hebrew. And they said they can't handle it. You know, they're semi-literate anyway. And, it's, and they said, our job is to make sure that when they get in front of a group of people, they can tell them about God and what's in the Bible. I mean, don't make it more complicated than that. So that's where I came up with this, this method um, of basically training them to teach one sermon on each book of the Bible. So that's 66, and they had to have it ready to go. And this is an hour-long sermon in each case. Yep, yep. And then 33 on a verse of scripture about the life of Christ. And then the other big one was the sermon that they would be asked to preach at the end of time, where they would celebrate God's great plan. And uh, that's just to set their imagination, you know. Right, for, and they've got quite an audience for that one. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I would be surprised if they weren't a bit intimidated, but some of them are very confident. If you've got St. Augustine sitting there and and uh, Thomas Aquinas and, and people like that. But anyway, uh, uh, that didn't mean much to them, probably because these figures didn't mean a whole lot to them. Right, okay. <laughs> Uh, although some of them find it a bit intimidating to talk to Peter and Paul if they were sitting there, but anyway. Um, but the thing was, John Paul, that, that the prerequisite insofar as they had one was they had to have memorized the four Gospels and 150 Psalms. So they were coming in very uh, able to learn manuscript. Mm. And, and so it was no trouble. And I realized that when, you know, we would talk about it and they would work, they used the old system memory palaces. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Yeah, where, yeah, you know, the, the yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. And, and that's how they, they learn things. So I remember going to them and I thought, well, I'll do this. So I learned Mark's gospel. You know, and you, you take yes. chapter one and you say, well, that's the elephant chapter. I'll put that in the elephant room, you know, right. so that you've got that key to hoike it up yes. out of the unconscious, you know, whenever yep. you need it. The thing 
the problem I had was it still went back down into the unconscious if you weren't reciting it enough. Okay. So that if I didn't speak it out, um, maybe once every two months, I lost it. Right, okay. And I noticed, you see, with them, I thought, well, what's the difference? They were always traveling around China on motorbikes, sometimes for hours per day. And that's when they would recite the four Gospels. Wow. And they would recite their sermons and everything like that. And I mean, that's hours and hours that they were spending. So this is how they were able to keep it all, you know, in the forefront of the mind. Yes. Uh, because they had the, they had a daily opportunity for rehearsal. Right. And this is why I thought it doesn't help me so much to go and learn Mark's gospel because I'm not going to have the time in my life to keep reciting it. Yeah. You know, that, that's the difference. Really. Right. So I wouldn't make a big deal about having all this in your mind, you know, to be able to let it ready to go. Um, if you didn't have that lifestyle no. that, that, that kept it uh, able to be accessed. What I, what I just am floored by is the idea that they memorized 66 hour long sermons on the books of the, I mean, just memorizing 66 hours of anything is not easy. No, I suppose not. Although again, you see, they've always got their hooks, right? You know, so it, it's, I noticed that most of them would have a little piece of paper. We didn't allow them to have it, but they, they would have the paper there and then they would, you know, they could review that and then they would go into the exam. But, but the paper was just basically usually about 10 points. Right. And some would be a story. Some would be a cue for a, 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 a truth. Some would be a gem, as they would call it, which would be a, you know, a, a beautiful rounded sentence that they would continue to repeat. Right. Um, they didn't use poetry or anything like that. You know, it wasn't, you didn't nod with it. It wasn't rhythmic, you know, like, like rapping or something. Uh, no. some, there would be other cultures that would do that, I suppose. But they did have, usually, uh, uh, photographically, a little outline would come into their mind. Right. And they would be able to use the hooks. Okay. To give you the to give you the hour, and very often actually, what would happen with their stories, sometimes it was just three stories, and they were quite long. Right. So you had three stories for the book of Nahum. Yeah. You know, that's forty minutes right there. Okay. Yeah. So, so the so I was going to ask, how can this fit with a whole, you know a whole hour with your one single point, but they would have one single point. And they'd come at it with those three stories. and Yes, that's right. I mean, the single point would simply be, you know, why is Genesis in the Bible? What's Genesis mean? What's it there for? You know, well, there's a point to that. And so yeah. everything you do, you keep returning to that basic point. Great. It's how God made promises to, to the world and kept them. Yeah. You know, once he saw what had gone wrong. You know, that's it. That, that, and you're just continually reinforcing that basic understanding of what genesis is for right oh, i feel like i've hardly touched on so many of the things in your book that i loved and i just i'm just blown away by the do we do you speak chinese i mean were they 
No, no, I don't. No, you see, because I'm getting it all translated as I'm as I'm sitting there. Wow. Um, because I gave them, you know, quite a lot of material, but and I did some of the teaching, but but most of the time they did it themselves. Once they've got the uh, the, the, the right. system sorted, um, yeah, it was it was quite fascinating to see them doing it. And and as I say, I I left envying them really. Yeah, you know, because I'd taken my endiv. And I was a wreck, really, after it. Right. <laughs> Didn't know what the Bible said or anything, you know, and, and I was almost afraid to pray um, to get things wrong and, and all that kind of thing. Whereas they got closer to the text. Uh, and, of course, you've got to make sure that they're getting closer to the text in order to know God. I mean, it's not enough. You know, God's not a book. Mm. Um, and it's easy to, you know, sometimes confuse God with the Bible. So I had to push them on that um, because they love rote learning, being right. semi-literate. It came easy, yeah. And uh, and so they had those. Uh, they were just amazing skills. Um, I'd love to see it done in another setting. We're trying to do something similar in Pakistan. Ah, okay. And we're doing it. And what I do with them is I say every time you do a sermon. I want you to carve it on a clay tablet first, what you're going to say, so that they get that sense of transferring it to something visual. Mm -hmm. It simplifies, and then that frees them from a script, although that's not, the, that's not a big deal for me. I think you can go up, you know, you talk about learning how to write oral English, then you're fine, you know, yeah. a script doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, if you can take it up and, and you know what to do with, with with the oral word, um, but we're trying that with them, and it's really helping. Um, yeah. I'm really impressed, and I and I hope that we can have more conversations because I, I sure I'd love to. Yeah, I think I've got so much to learn. When, no, and when, I'd I'd love to read your read your material. You, the website where you have it, you know, is that is that the nature of the book? You've spaced out the, the different topics and that sort of thing. It's a little bit what well, the bit about modest adequate speaking. Uh -huh, yeah. It's a bit, it, that was something I threw up very quickly while planning the book. So the shape okay. might change a bit. Right. It, right. It's a, probably it'd be a bit, a bit like that. I mean, essentially, yeah. I'm, I'm using the five uh, classical canons of rhetoric. Okay, with of Quintilian, yeah, right. Um, yeah. There's a bit of a kind of, it's almost, almost partly a memoir as well. And uh -huh. I throw in some examples from um, a friend of mine who died but did a, a great TED talk and winston churchill and your book i'm i'm quite a magpie in in that way yes yeah well yeah. You're, you're very welcome i mean this is why we stick books out there for yes for people to steal they've got they've got a version of my book in chinese i haven't seen a single royalty from it but frankly i don't care you know? right. uh, as long funny. as it's as long as it's out there in some format that, that's okay with me great yeah. oh thank you so much for your time not at all john paul keep it up and uh don't hesitate to ask again, even if it's just for for some uh, iron sharpening iron sessions. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. All Bye. right. God bless now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to an adequate podcast with me, John Paul Flintoff. If you want to hear more episodes on this theme of self-expression, please subscribe. I'm very keen to make this podcast interactive. Send me a comment or a question and I'll try to build it into an upcoming episode. 
Bye for now.